Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. Big show coming up in Los Angeles on April 26th at the Nerd Melt Theater. We have Tim Heidecker of Tim and Eric. He's going to tell a shocking story, a, a true jaw-dropper. I heard it just today. Uh, and Dylan Brody, uh, the wonderful Dylan Brody, will be with us for the first time that same night. April 26th in New York at the Pit, we're going to have Morgan of Morgan'sFunny.com and Selena Kopic. Then on April 28th, we're at the Linda Theater in Albany, New York. That's going to be a very special show. We've been making some wonderful friends up in Albany for a while now, and who knew that they have a uh, uh, the beginnings of a wonderful little storytelling scene up there themselves. So we're thrilled to be going up there on April 28th, and the next day, April 29th, we are having a one-day workshop. So... Go to risk-show.com slash tour to find out about the live shows and thestorystudio.org to find out about the workshops. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Extra Risk, where we give you just a little bit more of the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Rat City Brass. Behind me now, also behind me now, is my cat, Bowie, trying to claw his way into the sound booth here. Now, just a couple days ago, we had someone else in this booth. Mr. Danny LaBelle stopped by with this story, and I just sat there captivated listening to him. This is a this is a long form, folks, so get comfy. And I'll tell you, another thing I love about this story is that uh, the elderly play such a big role in it. And, you know, we just haven't had enough on the series so far uh, hearing from or about the older and wiser ones amongst us. Anyway, I love Danny very dearly, and I'm sure you will too. You can find him on Twitter, at Danny LaBelle. And we call this one, The Mayor 
of Mitchell Gardens. So I think the first thing you need to know is that the first few years of my life were spent living in an apartment in Flushing, Queens called Mitchell Gardens. I lived there with my parents. I was an only child at the time. My brothers hadn't been born yet. My grandparents lived in the adjacent apartment, and my great-grandmother lived down the block. So it was this beautiful time in my life. My grandma and I were talking and recalling my years living there as a child, and she said, oh, the old people, they loved you. They called you the mayor of Mitchell Gardens. So now we'll fast forward. I'm about 11 years old. I'm living in Long Beach, Long Island. And I wound up becoming friends with my neighbor, Walter, who was a World War II veteran, paratrooper, retired electrical engineer, and his friend, Sam, who was even older than Walter. Walter was the most fascinating guy I've ever met. His stories were amazing. He, he had uh, been stationed in Japan, and he told me about all the women that he used to get out in Japan and all these great stories about it, and how he was once chosen for a beer commercial randomly walking down the street, how he sent in a song to this company that advertised to get your song professionally recorded, and it was stolen and made into the song The Want Ads. You know, I saw it in The Want Ads. I used to learn the songs that he'd written, the songs that he used to do at this recording place. He had one called uh, Gamble that I loved. And he went, Heads you win, tails you lose, and if you lose, you cry the blues. That's what you get when you gamble. Roll the dice, spin the wheel, maybe you'll get a winning deal. That's what you get when you gamble. So he had all these great songs that he'd written. You couldn't believe the stories at Walters. I mean, one time I showed up and Tom Hanks wrote him a four-page letter saying how proud he was to send an autographed photo to a war veteran of World War II and that he'd love to come and visit him if he was ever in Long Beach, New York. And uh, I remember Walters' wife screaming from the other room, He's not coming in this house! (laughs) Going to Walters' house, to me, was like this portal, this window... To this magnificent world it was like a Narnia. He had roughly two or three thousand signed celebrity photographs that he would write to the celebrities and tell them I'm a World War II veteran and I'm your biggest fan. It would mean the world to me to get a signed photo from you. And they would write him back. And he got all the actors that you can imagine and all the comedians and you name it. He had them. All the Beatles that were still alive wrote him back, even George Harrison. Uh, Then he wrote all the astronauts, every living NASA astronaut. Then he moved on to cosmonauts. And then when he'd finished that, he started up again with the actors, round two. (laughs) On the weekends, Walter would go to garage sales around Long Island, and he would pick up anything that was cool or unique or collectible, and he'd bring it back to his place, and if it was cracked or broken, he'd restore it. Anything you can imagine, there was always new cool stuff at Walter's, you know? And we'd just hang out and talk for hours and hours. And those were some of my favorite memories. And, and when I was really lucky and my parents would allow it, and Sam would have to allow it, his friend Sam, who was often cranky and didn't want anybody coming along, 
I'd get to go on the weekends to these garage sales and yard sales with them and see where, how it was all done and watch the negotiating and it, it was just such a thrill. Eventually Walter's wife took ill with cancer and they moved to Florida so she could spend her remaining time there. I moved on and went to college in New York City and sort of lost touch with both Walter and Sam. Moving on, it was a few years ago, and I get a call from a friend of mine, Benny, who I hadn't heard from in a while. And he says, Danny, uh, I know you're struggling with comedy, and I know it's tough to make some money. you got to pay your dues. And I was wondering if you might want to take on a survival job, a little extra money on the side, part-time work at this nursing home I'm working at in Long Island. And I said, okay, well, what's the position? He said, we would need you to be a mashkiach. If you don't know what a mashkiach is, a mashkiach is a person who is a food supervisor to make sure that the food is kosher in a given establishment. So you have to know the laws of kosher and kind of know what you're doing. He said, I know you're not that religious these days, but you did go to yeshiva and I know you know the laws and we do need someone. We don't have anyone right now. What do you say? And I was hesitant about it at first because I felt there might be a moral dilemma. Here I am at nightclubs cursing on stage at strangers every night. I'm going to come in with a yarmulke on. It just seemed a little weird to me. So I sought advice from a holy man I knew. And he said, listen, if you keep kosher on the days that you work there and you go to synagogue and you make an effort, it should be all right. I took the job. first few days, I'm walking around with my yarmulke on, and I hear all the residents whispering, the new rabbi is here. Hey, look, it's the new rabbi. I was like, oh man, I don't know what I've got myself into now. There's a whole dual life going on, but I'm now the new rabbi at a nursing home in Long Island. There were a few very interesting things about this nursing home. The first that struck me right away was the fact that it was kosher, but there were barely any Jewish residents there. And being the rabbi and mashkiach, I was this kitchen figure that everybody came to to complain about the food. I had Italians coming up to me, how come there's no cheese on the meat lasagna? I go, well, it's kosher. They go, well, who the hell is kosher here? I go, there's a guy on the fifth floor. <laughs> Nobody understood it. That was one thing. And the second thing was that there was one particular resident there that was very near and dear to my heart, and that was Walter's friend, Sam. And Sam was now well into his 90s. His memory wasn't so great. And though Sam and I were never that close when I was young, now I started visiting him every day because he was someone I knew. He was somebody that I remembered from when I was a kid. And so I gave him a little special treatment, you know? He remembered who I was, but he never remembered the last time he'd seen me. So every time I show up, the first thing he'd say is, Daniel, is that you? And I go, yeah, it's me, Sam. He goes, oh, geez, you've put on weight. <laughs> every time he saw me, he saw this giant weight gain from when he knew me as an 11-year-old. <laughs> and then he'd tell me the same stories every time. He always told me the same stories, and I'd sit there, you know, I don't want to tell him you told me already, you know. I humored him and made him feel good by listening. 
And then he'd say, uh, did I ever tell you, Daniel, that I was a taxi driver in New York City many years ago? And I used to keep a roll of $1 bills in my sock. And that's because I'd get stuck up and they'd say, give me all your money. I didn't want to give them the real money. So I'd pull the $1 bills and give it to them. They'd run out. There's a trick for you if you ever become a taxi driver. I goes, thank you, Sam. Daniel, did I ever tell you I was in the Navy in World War II? And I got stationed in Hawaii. I go, no, tell me the story. He said, the waters in Hawaii were so blue. I pray to God that one day you could see such blue waters. They were so blue. And the girls, oh, so many girls. I get stationed there in our uniforms and they just come up to you one after another and give you kisses and give you presents. Oh, those are great times, Daniel. And then he told me about his mail route. He said, uh, you know, I did a mail route for 50 years with the U.S. Postal Service. Everybody knew me in the neighborhood. They all said, hey, Sam, how you doing? How you been, Sam? Everywhere I went, Christmas would come around. I'd get so many presents. Everybody treated the mailman with respect. It's different these days. Nobody appreciates their mailman anymore. But back then, you had a mailman, you had a milkman, you had an ice man, you had every kind of... And people loved it. And I had that job for 50 years, and everybody knew me, Daniel. I go, wow, that's fantastic, Sam. And then I'd say, okay, I got to get back to work. My break's about over. And he'd say, all right, let me, let me take you to the elevator. And he'd roll along in the wheelchair next to me and the, uh, get to the elevator. And he'd say, hey, thanks a lot for visiting me, kid. It means the world to me. And I said, it made me feel so good. And killing in stand-up for a thousand people in a theater doesn't give you that same kind of warm feeling. It's so genuine. I saw it in his eyes. It really made him feel good. And, and then he, you know, he'd always take my hand and he'd say, I want you to live to be my age. And that was it. It was the same exact dialogue back and forth almost every time. I tried to mix it up, but I wasn't usually successful. And I'd, I'd get in the elevator and I, and I would go back downstairs to work. So the dynamics of my job were two things. One was I'd be working in the kitchen, overseeing everything and making sure everything was done with strict kosher supervision. The second part of my job was working out of the kitchen office, doing administrative work, making sure that everybody's meal plans were correct. And there I worked under the main kitchen manager, a guy named Nick. And I knew the first day I met him that he was someone I had to stay on his good side. He looked like an angry fawn man to me. Just the kind of hair he had and the beard. Like, I always thought he might have a flute in his back pocket. He could be like an evil fawn man. He's one of these guys that you, you can tell there's something bad there, but he tries to be your buddy right up front, and you know it's like a fakeness. He goes, the first thing you got to know about these people here is that they're not your grandparents. They seem like sweet, nice old people. They're not. They're horrible people, and they're a nightmare, and they will suck everything they can out of you. Do not befriend them. The other thing is don't befriend the kitchen staff or they'll walk all over you. <laughs> the kitchen staff also were the nicest people. And I thought at first, they seemed pretty nice. I guess I'll get to know otherwise. I never did. They were great. But he always treated everybody else like such lower class citizens. And that was the attitude I was getting right up front. He says, uh, I've held this job for a while because the owners love me because I save them money. I save them money because I've been getting stuff out of their diet that they don't even notice. The more money I save, the bigger my Christmas bonus is every year. 
So this year I've come up with a lot of brilliant things. I've mixed ground turkey with the ground beef and the burgers because turkey's cheaper. So we save a ton of money on beef. He's like, I cut spinach out of the spinach lasagna. I'm like, then it's just lasagna, right? I cut out broccoli. Broccoli's also very expensive. At the end of it, he says, shit, if I could feed these people dog food and get away with it, I would. Another thing Nick told me, he said with the kitchen staff, he says, never give them the day off that they want because then they'll be able to rely on taking days off. If you have to give them a day off, you give them a different day than the one they want. And these people were coming in wanting their birthdays off or a specific holiday off. And every time he'd just send them away, like I, they were almost like in tears. It was horrible. I'd just have to sit there. And he knew which residents weren't all there and which ones he could talk down to and no one would believe them or they wouldn't talk about it. And I'd see him like be mean to these people. And then like an administrator would walk by and, and he'd like snap and his head he'd turn into the nice guy. Oh, hi, how are you? Good to see you. It was like this horrible Disney villain to me, you know? For a long time, I did manage to keep on his good side, but it was always like walking on ice. And then there was a guy named Mr. Wahid from Pakistan. Now, we had crossed paths before in my other life. As a comedian, I'd done a gig in a restaurant that he was a chef at. And he remembered me, and I remembered him. And that restaurant had gone out of business, and he wound up working as a chef in this nursing home. And he pulls me aside the first day that I'm managing the kitchen when he's there. And he goes, listen to me, Mr. Daniel, okay? I know who you are. You're not rabbi. You are a dirty comedian who's saying fuck and shit. You don't belong here. You're not going to tell me how to do my job. I was like, look, just let me make sure everything is kosher. He's like, you will not be my authority. You understand me? I will report you. I will expose you. He says, eventually Nick will turn on you like he does every mashiach. But in the meantime, I am much more rabbi than you. And I am much better funny than you. So you don't say nothing to me. So as the months passed, I started not taking my lunch breaks at all. I used to just go visit Sam. I start visiting all the residents that I'd feed in the dining room and start making friends with them all and start hearing their stories. And it was this amazing thing because you'd see an old man that you see every day just drooling in a wheelchair. And then you stop and talk to him and he'd like magically transformed into this soldier in the trenches in World War II like as vividly as if you're watching Saving Private Ryan. This old lady told me her story about how her husband was a door-to-door salesman and she was a victim of domestic abuse and ran away with the kids and wished she could do her whole life over again. And it was just incredible, the stories I would hear from the people. And there was this one guy who was one of my favorites. His name was Carl. He was 101 years old. He told me, when I was a kid, I was in northern Long Island. It was a rainy night. And I'm walking around in northern Long Island on a rainy night. And a horse and buggy pulled up next to me. And the door flung open. And a voice said, would you like a ride home? And I got in. And wiped the water out of my eyes and looked up. It was former President Teddy Roosevelt. Can you imagine, kid, getting dropped off at home? and telling your parents Teddy Roosevelt gave you a ride home. Nobody believed me. I was like, I believe you. (laughs) Only you believe me. (laughs) 
and Carl, uh, he was a painter, and he had all these great colored pencils and paints in his room, and he used to invite me up to see his paintings. 101-year-old guy, and he was painting all the time. And uh, one guy that became very special to me was a guy named Joey C., who was in his 90s. He looked like Uncle Junior from The Sopranos, and he was like known as the terror of the third floor. Like I think a lot of people kind of liked him just because, you know, he wasn't just another sheep going along with things. He made waves everywhere. A lot of the nurses had a hard time with him for the same reason. But uh, he didn't let anybody in close. He wouldn't eat in the dining room with the other people because he didn't get along with them. He was a wild man. He had like three teeth left, and they were all sharp. I don't know if that's a detail, but you could tell he meant business. And I fell in love with this guy immediately because he used to come down and give Nick a hard time in the office every day. He would curse out Nick and scream at him. He'd go, I asked you for oatmeal yesterday, and I get fucking Farina! I get fucking Farina! Are you a fucking dumb? Are you dense? Are you as fucking dense as you look? You don't know the difference between oatmeal and Farina? Answer me! Answer me! And Nick would just call security to get rid of him. And he'd have the Farina, and he'd be threatening to throw it at him. I'm going to throw it at you! If you throw that at me, you know what's going to happen. I don't know what was going to happen. But uh, he'd just, just stall him until security would get there. He just had such a temper, and it was so good to watch someone give it to Nick, right? And uh, just sit there and try not to just look like I was loving it too much, you know? He'd walk through the hallway in that very old man walk, which is semi-robotic, you know, because the limbs don't move very easily. And he'd sing, Oh, my aching balls, my aching balls. What the fuck do you want? He just turned to some, What the fuck do you want? <laughs> I love Joey. So I decided I want to get to know Joey. And one day I um, I went by his room and he said, Joey, can I get you something from the kitchen? He goes, hey, kid, what do you got? A, you got a beet and onion salad, Rabbi? I go, uh, I don't know. I said, I can go and find out. So I went down and Mr. Wahid was the chef. And I said, uh, do we have beet and onion salads? He goes, what do I look like? Gourmet chef, we don't have beet and onion salad. What do you want? I said, well, Joey C on the third. Joey C's not get beet and onion salad. You want to make for him? Go. You find beet and onion. So I did it. I made him beet and onion salad. I'm like, I'm going to win over Joey C. I'm going to show up with the beet and onion for him. And I said, I got you something. He goes, what do you want? I go, I got, I got you a beet and onion salad. What? I said, I got you a beet and onion salad. Where? I said, I made it for you myself. I made you. He goes, why? I said, because I like you. I, I wanted to do something nice for you. He goes, I don't trust that. Get the fuck out of my room. <laughs> so, I, so I just leave the beaten onion salad. And, <laughs> and I just go, I'm like, all right, he doesn't trust it. He doesn't trust it. And uh, I was like, I tried. Uh, I, I go up there two days later. The beaten onion salad's still sitting there, untouched. But this time he calls me in. And he goes, you really made that salad for me? I go, yeah. He goes, well, take it back. I don't want it. I go, okay. He goes, that was nice of you. I go, thank you. And and we started talking, and I started getting stories out of him. He told me about the day that Pearl Harbor happened. He was coming up the subway in Union Square, 14th Street, and there was a paper boy with the, you know, like you see in the cartoons. Read all about it. Hot, big news. The world is changing forever. And Pearl Harbor had been hit. 
he went home that day and, and told his parents, I'm enlisting in the service. He goes, because we were the greatest generation, boy. The greatest fucking generation. That's why you know. Once I got him talking, he'd tell these stories, but you'd always think the story's over, but it was never over. You know, I had this friend named Red. He joined the service. He was great. What a marksman. I go, okay. But something happened to Red. I go, oh, <laughs> so, the story's not over. Okay. He goes, something happened to Red. He stepped on a landmine. He stepped on a landmine. Blown to smithereens. That's what we think anyway. All they found of him was his dog tags and a bunch of blood. I go, oh, shit. Oh, well, that's quite a story. Anyway, the next thing you know, I'm at Red's funeral. And, <laughs> and the stories would go on and on. And you never know when it was over. And you're sitting there, and you're like, okay, where's the rest of the story? What are you still sitting there for? That's the end of the story. Get the fuck out of here. So, <laughs> I love Joey C. He, uh, he passed away while I was still working there, though. So I didn't have as long with him as I did with everybody else. But, God, he was one of my favorites. And then there were these two old Italian guys on the fourth floor, and they didn't have any family. I was working once Christmas Eve, because I'm a Jew. I was one of the few people that would work. I went up to visit them, and they said, Hey, Rabbi, the Rabbi's here. And I, I said, How are you guys doing? They said, uh, they said So, um, what else do you do besides being a rabbi? Is that all you do? And I said, You know what? No, I, I'm actually also a comedian. They said, Comedian? Like Dean Martin? I said, no, I do stand-up comedy, and, uh, and that's my main job. This is my side job. They said, what else do you do? you have any other jobs? And I go, well, before this, I, I used to do concert security. And they say, oh, wow. Did you ever do uh, Sinatra? I, I, said that, I said, Sinatra was a bit before my time. <laughs> the other guy goes, what did you do, the Beatles? <laughs> I go, no, I never, did, I never did the Beatles. I said, I did security for Jay-Z. And they said, who? I said, he's a rapper. He's a, he's a hip-hop guy. And the guy goes, amazing. I've never seen one of them. <laughs> and we had this great talk, and I said, Merry Christmas. And they both rolled out their wheelchairs to the hallway. And this is like one of the moments where I, I can't describe how good it felt. As I'm walking to the elevator, I hear one of them say to the other one, he goes, you see that guy? That is what they call a cool guy. And I don't think I'd ever been called the cool guy before. <laughs> and I don't think I've ever been called the cool guy since. But I just got back in the elevator and I was like, damn, this is like the greatest part-time job in the world, you know? And when I came back the next time, which was about a week later, word had gotten out that the rabbi's also a comedian. And now everybody's coming up to me saying, hey, I heard you're a comedian too. I go, yeah, it's true. Uh, tell me a joke. And uh, I said, okay, well, I, I do more monologue type of thing. <laughs> I said, uh, it's not really jokes that I do, it's more narratives. And So I start telling jokes that I remembered hearing as a kid. People started, you know, they really cared about me. Like, everybody was coming up to me in the hall. Hey, Rabbi, it's great to see you. You make my day, you know. Oh, when you work here, it's the best. And I used to do special things, like I'd make a salad bar at lunch. I'd just try and do something extra. And i go, hey, we having a salad today? i go, yeah, we are. Tell me a joke. And the mayor was back, you know? The mayor of Mitchell Gardens had returned. I was, like, restored to my full glory. I was king of this tiny little castle that nobody knew about. In the comedy world, nobody ever gave a crap about me. But as soon as I'd go to my other job, 
all of a sudden, you know, I was I was living the dream. I was making everybody laugh. I was I was making everybody happy. Uh, I couldn't have been happier with it. I think it was just a beautiful moment in my life. Now the word gets around to the staff that I'm a comedian also, and it reaches the recreation department. And the recreation department say, you know, a lot of the residents have been saying that you're really funny and you do great impressions. And, uh, you know, once in a while we bring around comedians and uh, we haven't done it in a long time. But how would you feel about performing <laughs> for the residents? And we'll pay you extra for it. What do you think? So now I'm getting paid gigs at the nursing home. I'm coming in and performing. I remember I called my friend Graham, who uh, is a good buddy, a, a comedian, a friend of mine who was visiting from Canada. I said, hey, Graham, I got a big gig for you if you want it. He goes, well, what is it? I said, how would you like to open for me at the nursing home? <laughs> so he did. He started coming out and opening for me at the nursing home. And we were stars around there. People, we walked around, Graham and I, and they, they're like, hey, the Canadian fella, you know? You know, a lot of our jokes, as they were, weren't hitting. So we started going back and watching old clips of old comedians like, Jack Benny and, and Henny Youngman and all these old timers, Bob Hope and Groucho, and, and we'd be trying to write jokes that would fit that sensibility, you know, things that made them laugh in their day. And we were doing great with it. We were killing. And for just a minute there, my life was perfect. Things took a bad turn one of the weeks that I wasn't working there. The next time I came in, the whole world had been shook. One of the residents committed suicide at the home. And the state had to come in and investigate to see if it was the fault of the nurses or if it was the fault of the care. You know, a lot of people were going around saying, it's the food! <laughs> That's why she did it. It's because the food's terrible and they don't put cheese on the lasagnas. The first day back, I got in trouble because I'd given a, a resident a fork. It turns out that since the suicide, they decided no more metal cutlery for any of the residents because uh, they could come to stab themselves with it and commit suicide. It was so ridiculous. And everyone was angry about it. They said, you know, I have no problem using a fork and knife. You're going to take away my dignity and make me eat with plastic cutlery because somebody... On the, I said, I know, it's crazy. Uh, uh, Carl the guy who I told you about earlier who had met Teddy Roosevelt, the painter, they took away all his paint brushes and all of his colored pencils. They're like, oh, he could come to stab himself with it in the neck. He couldn't be an artist anymore. Like, everybody was miserable. And Nick was worse than ever to deal with. As soon as I had given out a piece of cutlery, uh, he got chewed out for it. And so, of course, he, he said, it wasn't me, it was this rabbi, and he's terrible. You know, he, he doesn't listen to any of the rules. I wasn't even there for the rules, but it doesn't matter. I realized, from now on, I'm the scapegoat. Even though I had done something wrong, it was completely blown out of proportion. The next incident that happened was not much after that. I come into work to open up the kitchen at 6 a.m., and I go on the computer to print off everybody's meal tickets, and a thousand windows pop up on the computer, like a virus, right? So I, I had to call Nick. I said, are you aware of what's going on with the computer here? There's a million windows popping up. And he goes, no, I wasn't aware, but thank you for telling me. I go, okay, yeah, because I can't open anything. He says, okay, we'll just do it manually and just oversee everything. And I did, and that was fine. That same day, 
I started not feeling well. And I'd never done this before, but I, in the middle of the afternoon, I closed myself in the office in between meals and just put my head down because I wasn't feeling well for a while. The next day when I get into work, I got the Hasidim there and Nick and a bunch of nurses and they're all giving me dirty looks and it's like an intervention going on. And I, I don't think it's even for me. I walk in and I go, well, what's going on? And then Nick, like, he's like, you know what you did. I go, what, 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 what are we doing? You know what you did. I go, what did I do? And he goes to the Hasidim, that owner, and he goes, he was looking at porn yesterday on the computer. Six in the morning, he came in and looked at porn, and then he called me because, you know, the, the window. I go, what? This is the most preposterous thing. I said, first of all, I've never looked at porn at work in my life. Second of all, at six in the morning, who the hell looks at porn at 6 a.m. when they come? I said, this is crazy. I really was like half laughing. And then I was like, do I sound guilty laughing? And that made me sound guiltier. You know, none of this makes sense. I I said, all right, all right, all right. There's got to be a reasonable way we could clear my name here. Let's look at the computer's history. If someone was looking at porn, which I still to this day don't think anyone was looking at porn. I think someone just opened an email the day before that had a virus. They said, we already wiped the history. I said, well, what makes you think it? They said, you were doing it at 6 a.m., and then you were doing it again in the afternoon. And we know that because the, the camera in the hallway showed that you closed the door to the office. <laughs> so now it was like, oh, crap. I got this on me. The Hasidim were actually like, look, we don't know who did it. We don't know if you did it. We don't know if you didn't do it. The point is it shouldn't be done. And I go, yeah, I know. <laughs> and the nurses were just looking at me. And I said, I didn't do it. Does nobody believe that I didn't do this? I didn't do it. And they had no proof, so they couldn't do anything. It had gotten to the point where it was so bad that the nurses had told some of the residents. And one day, this guy, Mort, who was a friend of mine in one of the residents, he, he comes over to me and goes, Hey, Rabbi, I, I hear you like the porno flicks. I'm like, what the hell is it? People are giving me looks in a wheelchair. I don't know who knows what or what's going on. It became this very uncomfortable work environment. And Nick didn't stop with the passive-aggressive comments and the little jabs at me. Uh, oh, Rabbi, I see you're in early today. What, you didn't want to stop for an early morning flick? I go, what are you talking about? What are you trying to say? He goes, nothing. I'm trying. You like movies, don't you? You know. So he, he, was, he was just constantly like pushing me and, and pushing my buttons, and it never stopped from that day on. Then he shut down the salad bar. He said, I deal in money. I don't deal in niceness. And the state only requires they get one piece of lettuce and a slice of tomato with their lunch. This is a waste of money. It's not going on anymore. We're shutting down the salad bar. Every beautiful thing started to fall apart at once, you know? He started giving me jobs just designed to, like, tell the dishwasher that we're firing him and we're replacing him with another dishwasher. I go, but but he's a friend of mine. He's like, I told you not to make friends with them. They're workers. They're not friends. I I go, well, why are you firing him? He goes, we're not going to fire him. We're just going to scare him so that he takes on more hours. I go, I don't want to be a part of this. And then he's like, well, it's your job. You don't want to work here. I go, this has nothing to do with being a mashkiach. How is that part of the job? It got to the point where he was just torturing me. The fake bond that we had, that I had to put together to survive there with him, was completely broken and, and in shambles. We got to a point where one day I couldn't take it anymore. I think I'd been doing about 20 different things in the kitchen and sending up special orders and helping Mr. Wahid with peeling carrots and serving the main dining room and I sat down for a second and then he goes oh so you're sitting now so you think that, and, I, and I just snapped and I said that's it 
you can't talk to me like that. And I said, I don't need to take this from you anymore. He goes, well, you know what? You're fired. And I go, I'm not fired. I quit. And then it dawned on me, I was losing everything. I was losing all my friends. I was losing doing my shows there. Uh, I was losing my side job. And, and I, I started realizing, I don't know if I'll even see these people again. I was just so angry about how unfair it all was. And I walked through the main dining room where all my favorite residents from the third floor were eating. And they're like, hey, Rabbi, they, they didn't know what had gone on. They said, how you doing, you know? Uh, is your shift over for the day? Well, when's the next show, you know? <laughs> I don't know what compelled me to do it, but I made a speech to everybody in the dining room. I said, ladies and gentlemen, it has been my distinct pleasure and honor working here and serving you. We made a lot of friends and we lost a lot of good people. And I love all of you. I can't tell you how much it's meant to me being here. And I don't know if I'll ever see any of you again. Because I've been fired. And people were, they were shocked. They react. Somebody dropped a utensil. <laughs> there were gasps. Uh, somebody woke up, <laughs> you know. I, I'm like up there, I'm shaking, you know, and and people are yelling, why? You know, why? I go, because the guy Nick is a complete jerk in the kitchen. I said, I can't stand working for him anymore. He's accused me of things I never did. He's been talking down to me all the time. He's making my job a misery. He's pushed me to the point where he wanted me to quit, and I almost did, and then I, I yelled at him, and, and I got fired, and I, I said, it makes no sense, and it's, and it's wrong, and it shouldn't happen, and, you know, he's a horrible person. He told me once he'd feed you dog food if he could get away with it. You know, he's putting ground turkey in with the beef. It's not in your head. It's not ground beef. That's a mixture of ground beef and turkey. Cut spinach and broccoli out of your diet so you could get a bigger Christmas bonus. He's a horrible guy, and you ought to write, you have a right to know, and you ought to revolt. And you should, next time you're in the arts and crafts, you guys should make billboards. And uh, I, I, I was talking nonsense. I said, you should put signs on your wheelchairs that say, down with Nick, get Nick, get, get the Danny back. I said, don't, you don't have to take this. You still have a voice. People will listen. If you get together, people will listen. <laughs> I, was, I was just so angry. And people were like, don't go, don't go. And one guy's like, I'm coming with you. But he couldn't, you know. And I realized, I said, oh, shit, I'm getting everybody riled up for nothing. This is not good. I mean, it's not for nothing, but now I do deserve to be fired. <laughs> you know, I feel a, a hand on my shoulder, and I turn around. It's the security guard, and he goes, Danny, I, uh, I don't want to do this. He goes, I like you. I've always liked you, he said, but um, you got to go. <laughs> he says, you got you to gotta leave now my job and I said yeah you're, you're right and I left and as soon as I walked out that door I start crying like a baby and I was shaking I, it was like everything that I I loved was being torn away from me and I start walking back to the Long Island Railroad to go back to the city and Mr. Wahid was outside smoking a cigarette and he gives me a big hug. And he goes, Mr. Daniel, you don't need this shit. You don't need this. He says, I've seen you at the restaurant. You're very funny. You're going to make it a comedian eventually. And then you come back 
and laugh at all these people. He goes, you don't need this shit. He goes, you turned out to be a pretty good mashkiach. <laughs> it was like from a movie or something. <laughs> I was like, thank you. <laughs> and then I walked away. The thing that bothered me the most was just that I'd made such a big scene in the dining room and everybody was very excitable and they had to have told them something to calm them down and they would have said why did he get fired and I'd be dying to know the answer to that question what what kind of reason could he give that would be a legitimate reason why this happened so I called up one of my favorite residents I had to pretend to be his grandson to get through <laughs> And I, I say, Morty, it's Danny. He goes, who? I go, it's Danny. I, I, you know, about two weeks ago, remember, I, was, I made a big speech in the main dining room. I got fired. I was the mashkiach, the rabbi, the comedian. Did they tell you why I was let go after all that? He says, to be honest, I, I shouldn't even be talking to you. They got the lines tapped. <laughs> and he hangs up the phone. <laughs> And I sit there and I go, wait a minute, they got the lines tapped? And then I realized, no, that's just him being crazy. <laughs> I got to leave these people alone. So that was it. A few months went by and I decided I had to see Sam one more time. So I went in after kitchen hours. Again, said I'm Sam's grandson and it was a different security guard who was actually new, which worked in my favor. And I went to visit Sam one more time. And I, I saw a few residents and I was like, shh, don't. As I went by, they're like, Danny, you're back. Oh, shh, shh. I, I was just, I had, it was a mission. I had to be in and out. I wanted to stop and ask questions, but it, I knew as soon as I stopped, someone would recognize me from the staff and I'd be out of there. I went into Sam's room and it was all the same stories as always. He told me about being a taxi driver and keeping the money rolled up in his sock. and He told me about being a mailman and how everybody knew his name. And then he goes, if you ever make it out to Hawaii, the water's so blue. It's so blue, the water in Hawaii. You gotta see the water in Hawaii. It's beautiful. It was just this beautiful, calming moment for me and I could tell how happy he was. And, and then... He rolled alongside next to me to the elevator door. And as I get in the elevator and the doors are closing, he goes, Hey, I want you to live to be my age. And that was it. I left. A few months later, Benny, who originally got me the job, told me that Sam had passed on. And then I decided to go and see Walter about a week ago. Because he's now in his 80s and he has emphysema. He still lives in Florida. And I drove there. It took me 25 hours. And I went to Port St. Lucie with my girlfriend so she could meet him. He's such an important person to me in my life. And we talked about Sam. He's like, oh man, we lost Sammy. And I said, I know. He was a good guy. He goes, what a pain in the ass though, huh? I go, yeah, he was grumpy, but... He was a good guy, and he said, yeah, he was. And Walter got older, but he never got older inside. He's still always been the same young guy. And 
we sang the song Gamble together. And he still goes to collectibles and antique sales in Port St. Lucie every weekend, even with the emphysema. And he has a whole garage full of all the amazing things that he's found. And he gave me a bunch of celebrity addresses to write to. He's like, don't be stupid now, Daniel. Write to them and tell them you're a World War II veteran. You can make a lot of money off of this. We had a great time. But um, the whole experience for me working in the old age home was very emotional. I felt like on some level they were a connection for me to my youth and I was a connection for them to their youth. And when I got fired, it was all over. That's all for this time around, folks. Don't forget, you can follow Mr. LaBelle at Danny LaBelle on Twitter. This is Radical Face behind me now with a song called All Is Well. Everything you need to know about Risk is at risk-show.com. You will find our all-star episodes there for purchase. There are sweet things you can get for donating to us. Our submissions page tells you how to pitch your stories to us. Our live shows and tour page tells you how to come see us. And you can learn a lot more about the classes and workshops and one-on-one training online over Skype that we offer through our school, thestorystudio.org. Leave a comment about us on iTunes. It's very helpful to rack up those comments. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Risk Show. Tell your friends to tell their friends to check us out. And finally, folks, today is the day. Take a risk. The only-